So as we begin here in Joshua 1, we find the people of Israel, they are on the verge of entering the promised land. They've been sort of staggering around, wandering through the wilderness for 40 years. Right, just sort of can't seem to get out of their own way in, in a manner of speaking. And now Moses has died and they're on the border of the land. And, Josh, and God is going to now raise up Joshua to take the people into the land to inherit the promise that had been sworn to their fathers. So let's look now. We're going to look at Joshua 1, verses 1 through 9. It says, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am given to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses." From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. But you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So here we see Joshua's commission. He's being sent out or ordained for this leadership role. So there are a couple things I think we need to look at in this. The first thing that God, I think, shows Joshua right up front that he needed to realize that that Joshua, all of this that's about to happen, everything that's about to be done for this nation, that it's all because of me, right? That it was all the doing of the Lord. Look at how many times I is through those first few verses there, right? I am giving them to you. I have given you as I said to Moses, right? Then down in verse five, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And then in verse six, be strong and of good courage for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers, and so we see here that, that the Lord is laying this in front of Joshua. And every step, every victory that you will win, and you will win victories, it's because of me. And we see it's interesting if you think about what's about to happen with Joshua, and if you think about it in terms of a journey, what we see in this passage here is that the Lord, that he is the starting point of this endeavor. He is what will give them the strength throughout the endeavor, and he will actually be the one who provides the finished work of this endeavor. It's all because of the Lord. Look at verse 6, right? It says, For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. This was brought about because of something that the Lord had done, right? All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abraham out of the land of Ur, Abraham wasn't seeking God. He was worshiping false idols there. And God said, I'm calling you out, Abraham. I'm going to take you to a land that I will show you. I'm going to make a great nation of you. So it was God that had called Abraham out. It was God that had called, that had called Moses 80 years prior to this at the burning bush. He said, Moses, I'm going to use you to liberate the people. And it was then God who ordained Moses to bring the people out of Egypt and to start them on the journey. And here now we see again, it's the Lord who is ordaining Joshua to bring this work to completion. So the starting point of this endeavor was the Lord. It was Jehovah, right? 
He swore it, and because he swore it now, he's going to be faithful to complete it, right? If you look at verse 5, he says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. God said, I started this. I swore this oath to your fathers, and I am going to be faithful to complete it. No man will stand before you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Every battle, every, every difficulty that you encounter along the way, I will be there by your side, and I will bring about the victory. And then we see, finally, that the Lord also provides the finished work here. He, says, he said in verse 3, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses. I have given. He had already given it to this people as part of their inheritance. And he says here, On the surety of my word, right? On the surety of my word, I will bring it to pass. And so that's the first thing that Joshua needed to realize up front. That what he was about to undertake, God was the beginning, the middle, the end of all of it. And if he has that in focus, then what he's about to tell him next will fall in line. And I think that what we see here, while all of it was set in motion and would be uh, one on the back of the Lord, obviously, we actually see that the Lord then does put some parameters here in place for the nation of Israel as it relates to their responsibility within this. He says, Joshua, this is what I have promised you. This is what I will do. But if you want to be partakers in this, right, if you want to be active participants in what I'm going to do, then this is what's going to be required of you. And he really, he tells them two things. He says, you are to be strong and courageous, and you are to meditate on and be obedient to my word. Those are the two things that he says. Have courage and obey. And if, Joshua, you are willing to do that, and if you lead the people to do those two things, then I will take care of the rest. And we look, you know, and so I want to focus on these two ideas here, courage and obedience. Now, obedience is sort of a no-brainer in that equation, right? It's easy for us to make that association uh, that, that obedience is kind of that necessary step if I want to see the blessing of the Lord in my life. It does require obedience. That's not hard for us to to. Uh, to put those two things together. But I don't think we always view courage as being vital to the Lord accomplishing his will in our lives. But if you look three times here in just a couple of verses, verses 6, 7, and 9, he says, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Why did he have to say that three times? The reason he had to say that three times, because he was getting ready to ask the people to do something very difficult and very scary. And listen, the people needed to know ahead of time to take heart, to take courage, and to walk without fear down this path I'm about to take you down. Because fear can paralyze us. Now, I can know for sure that God is asking me to do something. I can know it with certainty. But if I look down that road and it's scary, it can paralyze me from moving forward in something I know God's told me to do. Fear can halt us in our tracks. And so the Lord tells Joshua here, be strong, take courage. Because fear can paralyze you. And you need, you need courage to walk without fear. You need courage to persevere when things are difficult. Because that can turn us off the path as well, right? If I lock, 
look down this road that God has, has laid out for me, and it's full of snares, and it's uphill, and it's rocky, and it's rough. I can give up. I can turn away. And he says, take courage. These people were about to enter in a period of months and years of fighting. This was a long road that they had ahead, and they're going to need to take courage. And a lot of times, guys, it takes courage to obey. Some of you have probably realized that in your own life, but if we look at verse 7, it says, Only be strong and very courageous. Why? That you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. See, a lot of times disobedience actually stems from fear. And if we look at the nation of Israel from the time that they had left Egypt until this point in time here that we see in Joshua, the main thing that had hindered their progress along the way was in these two categories, disobedience and fear. From the time that they had uh, escaped away from Pharaoh, right? They, they got down to the Red Sea. They felt like they were trapped. Immediately, they were fearful. And they started, they almost turned back, right? They said, God, why did you bring us out here to die? That was like a couple days after he'd set them free. You know, they're traveling down. And they're already panicked and fearful. And God delivers them. Right? He parts the sea and they cross over. But almost immediately after getting into the wilderness, fear began to cause them to doubt the promise that God had given to them. And so when they didn't have food, they became fearful that they were going to starve. And they complained to the Lord. And when they didn't have water, they became fearful they were going to die of thirst. And they complained to the Lord. In Exodus 32, you see that story where, where Moses... Uh, has gone up into the mountain. He's been up there a while, 40 days, right? God has given him the law. And it says the people, because Moses was gone for a long time, they didn't know if he was coming back. So what'd they do? They got Aaron. They said, we don't know what's going on with Moses. Is he dead? What's happening? We, we need somebody else to lead us. And they got panicked. They got fearful because Moses, they thought he had delayed in coming down. So they make that golden calf, Right? That's really a head-scratcher, I think. It's an interesting story, right? Moses comes down with Joshua to hear this singing. And all the people are celebrating, dancing around to this idol, right? And Moses goes over and chops it down, burns it down, kind of looks at Aaron, and Aaron's like, don't be mad at the people. You were gone a long time. We just, I don't know, they brought this gold, they threw it in the fire, and this calf, this golden cow jumped out. I heard that was, uh, this is Charles Darwin's favorite scripture here. It's funny, is that's actually more likely than the actual theory of evolution. But interesting, right, that fear there causes them actually to disobey, right, and start worshiping other gods there. They were fearful because there's giants in the land. Joshua and Caleb came back, and they were like, it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter. Let's go do it. The other ten spies they were like, no way. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. And the people were fearful. They actually wanted to stone Joshua. They were full of fear, and that caused them not to enter into the land. And from that, they were going to wander the wilderness for 40 years because of that fear led them to disobey. Now, you know, we see in, in, uh, in Numbers 21, right? It's, it's that story of, of the fiery serpents and the serpent on the pole. Now, the reason that happened, it said, because the people began to speak out. They spoke out against God and against Moses there. And that's why he brought those serpents on them. But it's interesting why they began to speak out against God. They had just finished fighting with the Canaanites, and it said that they were traveling around, and it said that they had become very discouraged. They had lost heart because the journey was long, and it was difficult. 
and when it was and it was full of a lot of potentially scary things and it caused them to lose heart and they began again to speak out against God and it's really it's the repeated story that these two things disobedience and fear had had hindered these people this nation from entering in so it's like the Lord is driving home this point to Joshua here be strong and courageous be strong and courageous be strong and courageous. Obey my commands and I will take care of the rest. He says, Joshua, if you want the story of this generation of Israelites to be different than the story of the last generation of Israelites, then you cannot make the same mistakes that they made. They were about to invade enemy territory that was full of walled cities, well-trained armies, and giants. They were going to face the same fears, difficulties, and temptations as the previous generation. And Joshua needs to understand this now, and I think that God is trying to drive it home into his heart so that he can then drive it home into the hearts of the people that you need to be strong, that you need to have courage, that you need to obey. You cannot turn to the right or to the left. If you will do those things, Now, I will go before you, and no man will be able to stand against you. Now, verse 8 is kind of what links these these two ideas together, courage and obedience, I think, here. It says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. See, when we meditate on the Word of God, that can become both the source of our courage and the source of our instruction for how we are to live. Both of those things can be found when we meditate on the Word of God. And as, and as Joshua would have looked back on the book of the law, right, it would have brought to mind you know, the, the, the story of creation, right? And of Abraham and of Isaac and Jacob and of Moses, which he knew firsthand. And, and he would have been reminded of the incredible miracles that God had done for his people and how he loved them and how he had called them and how he had always stood up for them and defended them. And that would bring courage to his heart as he meditated on those things. And then it also contained the law for how they were to order and direct their lives. And so as he meditated on that aspect of it, it would then give him the roadmap for how I direct my life in accordance to what God is desiring of me. So that, that idea of sort of meditating on the word of God, it, it's what holds the courage and the obedience together it is, is that focus on his word. Now, if we flash forward to the end of Joshua's life, if we're going to jump ahead to Joshua 23, I want to look at sort of as Joshua looks back, he, he gives an assessment of sorts here. So in Joshua 23, we'll start in verse 14. He says this. He says, Behold... This day I am going the way of all the earth. And you know in all your hearts and in all your souls that not one thing has failed of all the good things which the Lord your God spoke concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one word of them has failed. So Joshua is here. He's at the end of the life of his life. He's called uh, the leaders, the elders around him. And this is sort of his, his final things that he's saying here to the people. But as he looks back on his life, the overwhelming picture to him and what he challenges the people that are there that he's speaking to is to look and behold the faithfulness of the Lord. Not one word of all of the good things which he had spoken had failed. They had all come to pass. Now think about that considering the history of the nation and how they had acted towards God, right? They had rebelled against him. 
They had complained against him. They had made decisions based out of fear. They had challenged his authority. They'd worshipped idols, all of these things. But none of that could stop the purposes of the Lord from being accomplished. Now, I will say I, I do believe that their actions prevented them from coming to pass sooner, right? I I believe that that first generation of Israelites, if they had walked with courage and gone into the land, as Joshua and Caleb had said they could, God would have given them the victory then. But they did not do that, right? So God now is raising up another generation with another leader, and he's going to use him. But listen, Joshua remembers all of that. He and Caleb, they're the only guys left, but they had been there through all of the highs and all of the lows. And Joshua here is struck by the continued faithfulness of the Lord, even when his people were not faithful. What an amazing thing to be able to look back on your life and say, right? That not one of the promises of the Lord had failed. Everything that he had said he was going to do, he had done for Joshua and for the people there. What an amazing testimony. And in a lot of ways, it feels like the chapter should end there, right? On this kind of super high note. And, and a lot of times as you read it, like, I wish it did end there. Right? God is awesome. Now go out in victory. That'd be great. End it there. But it doesn't. Joshua actually immediately following this declaration of the faithfulness of the Lord goes on here to give them an extreme warning. We'll read verses 15 and 16. He says, Therefore it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you which the Lord your God has promised you, so the Lord will bring upon you all harmful things until he has destroyed you from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. When you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and have gone and served other gods and bowed down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. Now, Joshua was not the cause of the cowardice or the disobedience back before the nation had entered, right? If it had been up to him and Caleb, they would have entered in, and they would have charged in, and God would have given them the victory. But listen, even though Joshua wasn't the cause of it, he was still witness firsthand to the destruction of the disobedience and fear. For 40 years, he would struggle along with the people wandering through the wilderness, You ever been punished for something that you didn't do? Think about how much you hate that, right? Imagine Joshua and Caleb, 40 years, a 40-year punishment. Sometimes I wonder if Joshua was ever just, you know, towards the end, if he was ever like, Lord, can you you please just kill them all so we can get the show on the road? Like, just 40 years, right? But that time wasn't wasted. God was going to use that time in the wilderness for Joshua to forge him into the leader and the warrior that God would have him to be. He would forge him into somebody who was always going to have courage, who was always going to obey his word, and who would lead others to do the same. But listen, the point is this. Joshua puts this warning here because he had lived long enough and he'd seen enough to know that the heart of man, despite what people might tell you today, the heart of man is not good. The heart of man is desperately wicked, and there's something about it that is inclined towards rebellion against God. And so he gives this warning here that the same way that God has blessed you and taken care of you and given you this land and prospered it, he can take it away just as quickly if you're going to rebel against him and serve other gods. And unfortunately, as we move on from Joshua and the Judges, that's exactly what we see happen, right? There in the book of Judges, they would rebel against him. They would serve other gods. And God does take the land from them. He he gives control of it to other nations there. And we see that cycle repeated over and over in the book of Judges. The people would rebel. They'd they'd fall into idolatry. God would raise up a, a foreign nation to take them captive. 
Finally, they, they would get so far down, they would cry out to him for mercy and forgiveness. And he would. And he would raise up a leader that would set them free and would bring peace on the land until that leader died. And then the cycle sort of would start uh, would start over and over again here. So what do we make of this, right? We saw that I think that these sort of principles of, of success, of courage and obedience... I want to look kind of at this idea of, of principles of failure now. And, and it's really is principles of how God deals with us when we fail to obey. And what we see and what Joshua says here, what we see in Judges, is that God does not allow his people to have continued success to reap the benefits of the promise when they're living in disobedience. He does not allow it to happen especially if that disobedience was serving other gods. That seems to be the quickest and most sure way that that brought about the judgment of the Lord. But listen, God knows that allowing continued success when you're living a life of rebellion, it does lifelong damage. It would do lifelong damage to their character, right? I mean, after all, if things are going good, why change? You know, a child that's not disciplined for doing something wrong over and over and over, if they're never disciplined for that thing, they're going to grow up thinking that there's nothing wrong with what they were doing, right? If I never discipline my children when they talk back to their mom, by the time that they were old, they would think that talking back to your mom was just the way that you did it, that it was normal and there was nothing wrong with it. And God knows that, not, that allowing success while living in a life of sin, it causes lifelong damage to somebody's character. But think about that same idea now. What if they were never punished for serving false gods? Because now we're talking about real danger, right? Because now we're talking about somebody's eternal destiny being at stake here. Just think about it. If I'm in rebellion, serving other gods directly against the command of the Lord, and he allowed continued success in their life, what do you think then begins to go through their mental process? Well, why do I need to serve Jehovah? I'm serving these gods here. Everything's going fine. Maybe Jehovah isn't actually real. Maybe he's not the actual one true God like he says he was. And so when you begin to cross that line there, now you see that there's eternal eternities at stake. And so what we see happening is God is continually reaching down and punishing his children when they rebelled against him. And listen, it's not vindictive, right? That's not why God is punishing them. He's in essence, you know, to put it one way, he, he's saving them from themselves to a, on a certain level, from continuing down that path of destruction. And so one, that's the first sort of principle of how God deals with us when we don't obey, is that he won't let us succeed when we're living in rebellion. The second thing is the purpose of his punishment is always to draw us back. And yes, if we look in the book of Judges, we do see that there is repeated failure, right? And we have a tendency, I think, to to focus on that a lot of times. And we say, man, these people, they couldn't get it together. How could you keep making these same mistakes over and over and over and over? And when we think of Judges, we could have that where that's the main thing that comes into our mind. And yes, they failed over and over. But I think the amazing thing as we look through it is that we see that God continually welcomes them back home. That's the real story of God's punishment. That's the real story of the book of Judges. The moment that they would cry out to him in genuine repentance, he was there to raise them back up again and bring them back into relationship with him. Sometimes this took a while. Sometimes they needed to hit rock bottom. But whenever that point came, whenever they finally did hit that rock bottom, 
and they would cry out to him. He was there to scoop them back up and to welcome them home. So for us, what do we do with this, right? As we study the word, we always want to ask ourselves that question. It's not just a mental exercise in seeing how God dealt with his people. What do I take from this to apply for my own life today? Now, this idea of courage and obedience and God's punishment when we rebel against him. What do we do with this? Listen, we do need to make a distinction here. As we, the church here, is not under the Mosaic law like the people of Israel were at this time. And that's an important thing to understand. And what I mean by that is for the nation of Israel, the physical and material blessing at this time was promised by God and was directly tied into their obedience and their disobedience. And that's not the case for us today. And it's important because there is this whole vein of false doctrine that tells us that if we walk by faith and if we obey, you're not going to go through any hardships. You will be healthy. You will be rich. There's that whole prosperity aspect of if I walk in this way, God is obligated to bless me materially in this lifetime. And it's just, it's garbage. It's soul-destroying garbage. It's not taught by Jesus or anywhere else in the New Testament. Listen, some of the most spirit-filled, joy-filled people I've ever met live in some of the worst conditions on the face of the earth. Some of the most amazing, powerful places where God is doing incredible works are in the slums of Kenya and in the slums of India and in the villages of China where people essentially have nothing. And Hebrews tells us this directly. Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to turn there. that we are not under this same Mosaic covenant. I'll start in verse 6. It says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with my house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. And that, he says, a new covenant He has made the first obsolete. The scripture here tells us, right, that we're not under this covenant that was bound up in the law. That we're under a better covenant. It's new. It's better, guys. And if you have question about that, you know, that we're not under law, is it really better to be under grace through the blood of Christ? If you have question which of those is better, ask yourself, this. Would you rather have the promise of earthly blessing that was dependent on your behavior, or would you rather have the promise of an eternal blessing that was dependent on the finished work of Christ? If you put it in comparison like that, there is no comparison. One of those two is far greater than the other. 
It truly is better. That being said, the nature and character of God is the same today as it was during the time of Joshua. Now, God doesn't deal with us in accordance with our sin in the same way that he, he, he dealt with the people then. But the, I believe that the spiritual principle is necessary for the people to have victory in the time of Joshua, that those same spiritual principles can be applied to our lives today. Listen, how does God deal with us when we fail, when we disobey? I think he does it in the same way. He still chastens his children. He still realizes that the worst thing for us would be to allow us to have continued success while we were living in rebellion against him. I'm speaking about the true believer here because in the world we do see evil men doing evil things and they're succeeding at it very well. And that's a, that's a different situation and God has his different reasons for why he allows that to happen. But for the believer, the genuine, the true believer in Christ that has that is fallen into sin... He's not going to let you live in open rebellion against him and continue to have success. Hebrews tells us that. In in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, the Lord loves those that he chastens, right? He said, what son is there that that a father would not chasten? He chastens us because he loves us. And he goes on, actually, there in Hebrews 12 to tell us the purpose of his chastening. It says, no chastening seems joyous in the moment, but afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness for those who are trained by it. See, the reason that he disciplines us in sin is because sin is destructive and it develops destructive patterns in us. That's what sin produces. It produces destruction. Chastening of the Lord produces, it says there, produces righteousness. Now there's an important clause that's at the end of that. It says for those who are trained by it. If we find ourselves under the discipline of the Lord, there's really two ways that we can react to that. One is that we yield to it, right? We fall to our knees, repentance, we cry out to him for forgiveness. First John tells us if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the one way we can go. The other way we can go is we can fight against it. We can kick and scream and fight against the discipline of the Lord. You know, it's like that, that kid in the grocery store. You've seen, right, that the mom is reading him the riot act and he is just as defiant as can be. And she is adding up all of the stuff that he's going to encounter when they get out in the car and when they get home. And you're kind of like, try not to laugh. It's not, you feel bad. But you're like thinking, and you're like, man, if she really does all that, the kid's going to be dead by the end of the week. You know, just fighting against it. I grew up with a couple brothers. Um, my fair share of trouble as a kid. And my mom, she employed a variety of different discipline methods on me as a child. The thing that I hated the most is my mom would make me write. <laughs> Somebody else does that. <laughs> like the... T- like detention at school, writing on the blackboard, right? My mom would make me do that. I hated that. You know, like a nine-year-old, whatever, I can't remember anything specifically. Steve, I want you to write 50 times, I will not gross my sister out, or whatever. I hated it. And so a couple times, you know, I'd be like, I ain't doing it. And my mom would be like, all right, you want to play that game? 75. Let's go for 100. 
Let's go for it. And man, I would rack, I would rack up. I'd be sitting in my room like trying to invent some kind of pen that had four <laughs> points on it so I could write. Like, I was not Thomas Edison. Ripping the paper. Three hours later, I'd go out. Can you just spank me, please? Like, can we get this over with? Now, you see that in a child, and it's one thing. But you saw that in in an adult, you have a really different attitude about it, right? But that's how we are. That's how we can be the discipline of the Lord. We can fight against it, and we can kick against it. We can go the other way. But what's the danger in that? Danger in that is that the next punishment is going to be more severe, right? And if you continue to kick, God's going to continue to pursue you. And what that looks like when you're fighting against him, his pursuit of you often looks like discipline. And if you continue to fight against it, you might find yourself at rock bottom, right? And some of you have been there. And he will let you. He will let you hit smack in to that rock bottom because he knows that for some of us, that's what it's going to take for us to finally turn back to him. But listen, guys, that's his pursuit of you. And if you find yourself here tonight and you're under the discipline of the Lord, you need to yield to that, right? And it will produce something good in your life. When we allow his discipline to train us, it will produce righteousness in us. Maybe you're here tonight and you are on rock bottom. I guess the good news is you can't go too far below the bottom. But listen, if that's you here tonight, God is pursuing you. And if you will turn to him tonight, he will welcome you back with open arms because he is faithful even when we are not. So I think that we see these principles of failure that are effect in our world today, but I, th- I think that these principles of success, they're still in effect in the world today as well. And guys, we need to understand that God still asks his people to do really difficult and sometimes really scary things. He still asks us to go into enemy territory with a target on our back. He still asks us to do things that will test the limits of our endurance and of our patience and of our self-control and of our unity. And listen, if we want our church to move forward in power, if I want my family to move forward in victory, if I want my life, my ministry to move forward in the direction that God wants it to go, I think the exhortation for us today needs to be the same as it was to Joshua, that you need to have courage and you need to obey. That bridges every gap that society would try to put in place. doesn't matter if you're white, if you're black, rich, Poor, young, old, male, female, every single person can live a life of courage that's obedient to the commands of God. Every single person in this room, every single person in this nation and in this world can live a life of courage, and can live a life of obedience when Christ is the source of those things. Listen, again, we see obedience. It is kind of that no-brainer, right? The times in my life when my relationship with the Lord has been good, the best, with my family, with my kids, with my ministry, the times when those things have been the best are, are obviously the times when I'm not in some kind of open sin against the Lord. But I think that courage in our day is often overlooked as well. You know, in, in Revelation 21... It gives off a list of people who 
are going to have their part in the lake of fire, it says. What jumps out is the first thing that's on that list, it says cowards. It's really interesting, right? It's the first thing on the list of those who will have their part in the lake of fire. Now, in the context of that passage, I believe that it's referring to someone who would deny Christ in the face of persecution. That's happening in places in the world today. But listen, it's on this list of things there in Revelation 21 because making decisions based on fear or living a life that's dominated by fear, there's something about that that strikes directly against Creator God who says that I have not given you the spirit of fear but of power and love and of a sound mind. Are we instilling this in our kids, in our sons, in our daughters, in our young men, in our young women, that you need to be willing to live a life of courage and obedience to the Lord? Because they're going to need it. Look around the world, right? Now more than ever, the people of God need to be willing to stand up and have courage and take heart and obey his word. You need courage to do what's right. even when everyone else around you might not be doing it, even when your Christian friends might not be doing it. It takes courage to do what's right. It takes courage to flee temptation. It took Joseph courage to flee from Potiphar's wife. He knew that was going to cost him something. Sometimes it takes courage to flee temptation. Now think about young people and and the phones and how much temptation is there and social media and how much is on there. But it's such a pressure-driven thing. You know, and if there's a high school student who doesn't have the phone, they're a weirdo, right? But listen, if your phone is causing you to sin, if your phone is tempting you, you need to flee. It might take courage to do that, to say... You know what? I'm willing to miss out on some of the things that are going on because I don't want to sacrifice something that's far better. It takes courage to walk down the dark valley that the Lord might be asking you to go down. Maybe you've recently experienced the death of a loved one. Or maybe you're sick. Maybe you've had a recent diagnosis of something serious. Or maybe you're the caretaker for somebody that has. It takes courage to walk through that valley. Because sometimes you have to camp out there for a while. And it takes courage to persevere when the road is long and steep and it seems like there's no end it takes courage to persevere and it takes courage to obey you say listen I I just can't do it I'm weak I'm afraid listen we can't do it on our own that's where God's word comes in that's where the meditation on God's word comes in saturate yourself in it Soak in it. Let it restore you. Let it build you up. Let it give you courage. Meditate on his word. It will give you courage. It will show you, it will instruct you how to live your life. Listen, remember what the Lord said to Joshua. Chapter 1. Be strong and courageous. Why? Not because the enemy wasn't real. The enemy was very real. He said, be strong and courageous because I am with you. Guys, sometimes having courage is just a matter of remembering who is with you. If God is for us, who can be against us, right? Listen, all of us, if we're not raptured, at one point we'll we'll be at the end of our life 
if we relied on the Lord, if we meditated on his word, if we lived with courage and obedience to his word, like Joshua, we're going to be able to look back and say, wasn't the Lord faithful? Everything that he said he would do, he has brought it to pass. Not one word of all the good things which he spoke has failed. Nothing can stop the purposes of the Lord. It doesn't matter who's president. It doesn't matter if there is a pandemic. It doesn't matter what the enemy tries to do. The enemy thought he won because he'd nailed Christ to the cross. And God said, you just put the nail in your own coffin. That was the greatest victory in the history of the world came through when Satan thought he had his greatest victory. There is no plans of the enemy that can stop the purposes of the Lord. Every word, every promise will be fulfilled. And for you and I, like Joshua, like the nation of Israel, We need to walk with courage, and we need to obey his word, and he will do the rest. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, Lord. I pray that anything that was of me would just blow away with like chaff, Lord, but the things that were from you would, would be driven deep into our hearts. I pray that as we go out from here that we would pray these things into our lives. And then would you please empower us with your spirit to live them out of our lives. Go before us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.